0: It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small-town clinics, big-city health systems, and healthcare care professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday, and Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the government shutdown continues. Medicare programs will continue largely without disruption, according to the Department of Health and Human Services contingency staffing plan. Also expected to continue during the shutdown. Healthcare fraud and abuse control will continue to monitor this developing story. On today's Monitor Monday, we're going to report on the Medicare Advantage DRG audits. Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jane Paul Spencer will have that lead story later in the broadcast. Also, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals has expanded its settlement conference facilitation program, but in doing so, it is causing confusion. Healthcare Attorney Andrew Walkler sets the record straight. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer returns with another example of risky business. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and in New York attorney Ed at Roach returns with a shocking report on cyber attacks in healthcare facilities. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest Hot Topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday Rounds here
0: on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, it's been way too long since I criticized a Medicare contractor,
2: so here I go. Thank you, NGS, for making me waste one of my valuable questions on the recent CMS Open Door Forum. For those that don't know, you're allowed one question and one follow-up question. Now, why they cannot just say you're allowed two questions will be a topic for a future segment. But anyways, I used my first question to ask if there's any new information on the contention by Humana that they were allowed to let Medicare Advantage patients have inpatient-only surgery performed at ambulatory surgery centers. As I outlined in a past Rack Monitor eNews article, I think this is a beneficiary safety issue. CMS has not determined that these surgeries are safe to be performed outside a hospital, yet Humana is allowing it so they can boost their profits. Safety be damned. I was informed by the always pleasant Tiffany Swigert from CMS that the issue is still being discussed. Then my second question was about the issue, another issue I raised in the past. The contention by NGS in an August bulletin that apheresis requires a physician to to personally supervise the procedure and be in the room throughout the procedure. That was absolutely contrary to CMS guidance and was based on a misreading of a very old CMS document. Well, as it turned out, NGS had retracted that bulletin with a notice they slipped on their website. In the, the retraction, they simply stated the prior bulletin was a restating of the NCD and was unnecessary. Not one word that the information was blatantly wrong or that they were sorry for misleading providers and causing panic in the apheresis world. Next time NGS, go ahead and own it. It's okay to make mistakes, we all do it. A humble apology goes a lot farther than being exposed for trying to hide the truth. Now my second issue today is more on total knee replacements. I'm hearing a lot of skepticism about my article with many afraid of using inpatient admission so liberally. And that's okay. As I emphasize, it's a philosophy very much contrary to what we've been saying for the last four years, even though it is what I think CMS wants hospitals to do for this surgery. But allow me to give another word of warning. If you're a participant with the total joint replacements in either BPCI or the CJR Bundle Payment Program, or considering participation in the new BPCI Advanced Program just announced by CMS, you need to read my rack monitor articles. It's gonna be published tomorrow. These programs only apply to inpatients whose admissions fall under DRG 469 or 470. And if you choose to do your knee replacements as outpatient and then only admit those patients who need a second midnight, the DRG is gonna depend on why they were admitted and may take the patient out of the bundle. And in that case, you lose the three-day sniff waiver. And in some cases, you won't know until after the patient's sent to the SNF, and that never
1: works out well. So watch your email tomorrow. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck. And Dr. Hirsch, that couldn't be more true about the sniff. Um, I was over the weekend doing a live seminar with about 250 therapists that work in skilled nursing facilities. That was the top item on their agenda, the three-day rule and how total knees are going to affect these patients. Now to a hot topic, and I don't think it could get any hotter with the therapy cap. CMS provided guidance, if you want to call it guidance, um, on the spotlight portion of their website last week, basically indicating that they were going to hold claims affected by the cap for a period of time. They didn't describe any of the terms. Then Friday, sometime during the day, they changed the notification on the website, indicating that they're taking um, steps to affect the limitation of the impact on Medicare beneficiaries by holding all claims affected by the therapy cap exceptions process expiration for a short period of time, still using that term and not defining it, beginning January 1st, but only therapy claims with the KX modifier will be held and claims submitted without the KX modifier will, if they are over the cap, not be paid and will be denied. So we have some challenges. And given the government shutdown right now, it's not likely that we're going to get further clarification from CMS on how to process issues, how to properly provide therapy services for beneficiaries where it's much needed, and we're just still waiting to find out if the therapy cap's going to go away or if we're going to have a continued exceptions process. Watch for my article coming up this Thursday where we'll at least report on what's new as of that morning. So now on to our Monitor Monday listener poll. We always have a segment that is probably one of our more popular segments with David Glazer on risky business. Of course, a lot of what we talk about on Monitor Monday is risky, but if you had to predict what's going to be risky on the horizon of the next six months, what would your prediction be? Is it going to be RAC audits? Is it going to be MAC targeted probe and educate? Is it going to be Medicaid Rack or other Medicaid audits, or all of the above? Thanks, Chuck. We'll be back with the results of this poll later in the program.
1: Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very interesting poll later in today's broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Ed Roach, J. Paul Spencer, and Andrew Walkler. This is Monday. It's January the 22nd, 2018. It's Day 3 of the Government Shutdown, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. We're here. Stand by.
0: Ahema has partnered with Marcy to present the first risk adjustment coding and auditing course that prepares professionals for risk adjustment coding and goes a step further to address chart auditing. This course provides extensive, in-depth education for those working in risk adjustment and who need a thorough understanding of HCCs, coding, and auditing. Coders must recognize how documentation issues affect both revenue opportunities and compliance concerns, gain understanding of a methodology to audit charts, logically categorize findings, and create a method for helping ensure findings are appropriately addressed. For more information, visit Ahima.org. Slash /risk adjustment course
1: Coming up later in today's broadcast, healthcare attorney Andrew walker clears up the confusion over the two new settlement conference facilitation initiatives. Those come from the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. They might seem the same, but they're different. Andrew walker is going to explain why. Now we're going to check in with healthcare attorney David Glaser, who is reporting on some risky business this morning. Good morning, David. What is risky today? Good morning, Chuck.
4: So at a recent conference in California, I had to, prop- to change my proposed talk to offer a rebuttal to the speaker before me. This consultant declared that the level of medical decision-making alone controlled the selection of a code for any evaluation and management service. She confidently asserted that for an established patient, Regardless of the level of history and exam, if the medical decision-making was low, a 99213 was the highest code that can be billed. This misguided consultant is not alone in believing that medical decision-making is some coding lodestone. I think some people seem to conflate medical decision-making with medical necessity. The only similarity between the two is the presence of the word medical Medical necessity is the idea that insurance won't pay for a service that the patient doesn't need. That's a very basic and reasonable reality. Medical decision-making is an attempt to create a formula to quantify the amount of effort that a medical professional expends as, when they're evaluating a patient. The methodology for evaluating medical decision-making is contained in both the CPT book and in CMS's e and m documentation guidelines. Now, the consultant I saw put up a slide with a common E&M scoring tool. The instructions say right on them that the user should choose the code based on the highest two of the three key components. Nevertheless, the consultant insisted that you follow the line for medical decision-making, and that will help you choose the right code. Now, it's certainly true that for certain code categories, like a new patient, hospital observation, inpatient hospital care, and the like, the lowest of the three key components determines the proper code. But the CPT book is very clear that for established patients, subsequent hospital care, subsequent nursing care, and a few other categories, you choose the code based on two of the three key components. You get to throw out the lowest. After her presentation, I showed the consultant the language in the CPT assistant. She was undeterred. Now, she's not alone. I bet following this segment, I'll get a couple of emails from people insisting that I'm mistaken. But before anyone writes me, I hope that they'll make sure that they've got a really good source. Because if you can't cite something as credible as the CPT manual, you should reevaluate your position on this point. If you're thinking, wait, medical necessity does control. Well, that's an entirely different question. Medical necessity is a different issue, though I would note, it's always struck me as somewhat circular to argue medical necessity on e and services, because until you've completed the e and service, it's hard to know what the patient has and exactly how much work is, in fact, medically necessary. But basically, we'll chalk this one up to the line of, not everything you hear at a conference is necessarily true. So, Chuck, usually my song ties in with my segment, but this week I'm going to do something a little different. I missed the yearly kickoff last week because I was enjoying some time in Hawaii in between speeches. Uh, yes, I was there for the missile snafu. So, But I really missed being here, which brings me to today's song. Funny, but it always seems like I wind up here with you. Nice to know that somebody loves me. Funny, it seems the only thing to do, run and find the one who loves me. There's no need to talk it out. We know what it's all about.
5: Rainy days and Mondays always get me down.
4: Now, the title of this song completely flips my feelings. I love Mondays, and as a storm chaser, I love rainy days, or what we've got today, a snowy day. But that doesn't diminish my love of the Carpenters. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, David, very much. That was health care Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at a law firm of Pedersen and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature is currently 31 degrees, with about an 80% chance of snow within the next hour or so. 2017 is going to be known as the year for a record number of security breaches at hospitals and health systems across the country. Here now to report on the shocking number of cyber attacks, Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach. Ed, welcome back. What's happening with cyber attacks?
5: Hi, Chuck, and a belated Happy New Year. Let, let's look at the year ahead. As you recall, during 2017, IT security and health care was in the spotlight. In May, the WannaCry ransomware hit thousands of information systems. It was followed by NotPetya, which took down Merck and Nuance. In June, the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force released a number of security frameworks, and the number of cybersecurity training programs shot up. Consultants always like a business opportunity.
3: By August,
5: professionals were worrying about the Internet of Things, including malware infection of medical devices or even pacemakers active within patients' bodies. In Stockholm, at the October ITEC Law Conference, practicing attorneys expressed concerns that there is no legal standard defining an organization's level of due diligence in management of their information systems. Organizations are being held responsible by government regulators, but with no objective standard of security. And without an accepted standard, organizations will remain unable to protect themselves from litigation claiming negligence in their data management. The end-of-year statistics told it all. Healthcare system security breaches went up 24%, but ransomware incidents went up 89%. We can expect that in 2018. IT security will continue to be a challenge. 2018 already is off to a great start. Last Thursday, two North Carolina-based data centers of the giant company Allscripts had their cloud platform disabled by a ransomware attack. All patient information became unavailable. The e-prescribing system and the EHR platform went offline. Electronic prescribing of controlled substances functionality went down. Physicians reverted to paper. The previous week, Hancock Health in Greenfield, Indiana, was hit by ransomware. All of the patient names and its records were changed to I'm Sorry, as in Mr. Sorry. Hancock paid out $55,000, which is much less than it would have cost to restore the system had the records remained locked. The I'm Sorry attack had been visited on Adams Memorial Hospital prior to this. Just yesterday, a group called Shadowboxers, started using two NSA exploits, Eternal Blue and Eternal Synergy. Some have placed blame for ransomware on the rocket man bully of North Korea. After all, ransomware is a money-making operation, and the use of cryptocurrency makes it easy to get paid. Or it could be the Russian mob, or other governments, or rogue hackers, or someone else. It really doesn't matter. Hackers, crackers, terrorists, non-state actors, even state actors, all continue to be antagonists to the global cyber infrastructure. What's important is that ransomware is what the U.S. intelligence community calls an advanced persistent threat. In 2018, the tsunami of ransomware will continue to do damage to thousands of health care providers, both public and private. It cannot and will not be stopped. Efforts are being made to set up mechanisms for the sharing of cyber threat information between organizations. Theoretically, this should mitigate the damage, but we will have to wait for the end of year 2019 data to see if it really works as planned, and my guess is that it will not. But let's look at the bright side. Perhaps the hackers will compromise government and rack computers and wipe out the appeals backlog. Then we could all get off to a fresh start. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigator Reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach. He was reporting on security breaches among America's hospitals and health systems in 2017. Are you being slammed by Medicare Advantage, DRG Audits? Well, we're going to have a report later in the broadcast on this disturbing new trend. But now we turn to health care attorney Andrew Walkler, who explains why two settlement conference facilitation initiatives might seem the same, but they're not. Drew, help clear up the confusion.
6: I think some of the confusion is uh, emanates from the fact that when CMS uh, provided the open-door forum, they only talked about the low-volume appeal settlement. And there are two SCF programs that have just been initiated, and you really have to read them both together because they're kind of the other each side of the coin. Um, the first one, and this is where we have the open door forum, was the low volume settlement, which is a set settlement number of 62%, and it's for 500, less than 500 appeals, each appeal being $9,000 or less. Um, the, the, um, You count the 500 appeals as of November 3rd, 2017, and it is across all NPIs. Uh, They are appeals that are pending at the ALJ and the Appeals Council. So, for example, if theoretically you had lost 450 appeals, appealed them to the Appeals Council, um, and lost them before the ALJ, you can still settle them at 62%. So that's the general eligibility requirement. Uh, it includes the um, inpatient, outpatient issues that still may be pending. Uh, for those that did not take the 66 and 68 percent settlement, this is the key in what everybody has to remember. There's a window to initiate settlement. For even NPIs, those ending in even numbers, It's February 5th, which is coming up through March 9th of this year. For those NPIs ending in odd numbers, it's March uh, 12th, 2018, through April 11th. So if you have less than 500 appeals that are under $9,000, this option is available for you. Now let's look at the flip side of the coin, and I think this is trying to accommodate... Uh, what is left, and this is a program, this is the expanded SCF. It is effective on beginning April 18th. And again, we have the same time frame, uh, filed on or before November 3rd, 2017. These cannot be scheduled uh, for ALJ hearings yet. And so there's two components of this. One, if you have over 500 appeals pending, at the ALJ or at the appeals council or to any number of appeals at the ALJ and the appeals council that are greater than 9,000 in bill charges but under 100,000 and so that really captures uh, a significant amount of what may be out there in individual claims <laughs> if it's under 500 appeals and under 9,000, you go to the 62% settlement. Otherwise, you can settle these claims um, along uh, with the similar SCF uh, process. And this does include the inpatient, outpatient claims that are still pending, that if if you have a number of those, you can go to SCF and see if you can uh, come up with a a settlement that you're satisfied with. Uh, With that, Chuck, I will turn it back to you. I hope that's uh, clarified the programs.
1: Thanks, you very much. You did clarify the programs. That was Andrew Walker. Drew is the managing partner Walker Associates. Thanks, Drew, very much for that clarification. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that a listener to Monitor Monday last Monday sent us a message saying that her facility had been slammed by Medicare Advantage DRG audits. She wanted to know if others had been. It as well. So we asked Monitor Monday Nash to correspondent J. Paul Spencer to investigate. Paul, what did you discover?
7: I'd like to thank the listener who uh, brought this question uh, in front of us. Uh, it allowed me to do a little bit of research into the types of things that this particular facility is seeing. So, in reaching out to this listener, we learned that a uh, hospital system in the Midwest uh, began. Uh, seeing this activity in June of 2017, where Medicare Advantage was beginning fairly aggressive audits of certain DRGs. Uh, Now, this didn't particularly happen to be one uh, Medicare Advantage Carrier, uh, we're looking across the spectrum. We're looking at Aetna, Anthem, Humana, uh, uh, Indiana, Medicaid, MHS actually uh, jumped on one, and then uh, we also had United Healthcare had one. Uh, Now, uh, when I asked if there were certain DRGs that the carrier was focusing on, uh, they were looking mostly at uh, uh, high-complexity cases such as septicemia, sepsis, COPD, uh, which also included acute respiratory failure with hypoxia and suple pneumonia. Uh, there were scattered volumes. It appeared that Anthem and United Healthcare had the higher volumes of the uh, of the claims that are being audited in this DRG uh, arena. And it looks like most of the dates of service that they were looking at go back to early 2017. So these were fairly new claims that they were looking at. Now, the one thing that jumped out uh, is at, to this particular facility is that they understood that, uh, as usual, there are documentation hurdles that can be overcome. But the biggest frustration that was coming forward was the fact that these insurance carriers are now trying to begin to dictate how and what care is provided. Some of these DRGs. The example that this person relayed was that they have a patient's uh, they have a patient where they diagnose acute on chronic respiratory failure. And apparently, in order to build that DRG, the insurance carrier is now looking for the facility to perform an arterial blood gas measurement. Uh, Now, uh, anybody who has either been through this procedure or has seen it done, knows that it is a very uh, painful bedside procedure, uh, and uh, ironically, uh, it's going to add more cost to the stay to start doing procedures like this. The facility in question has now begun to capture some of the information that some of these MA plans are beginning to ask for and they are going to uh, try to report to CMS some of the findings that they are coming across but I urge all of our listeners that uh, some sometimes the best way to approach these problems is by common information sharing so if you're seeing similar types of audits uh, Based on uh, what we're seeing from uh, uh, or what we're hearing from this particular listener, please reach out to us and let us know uh, what type of uh, audits you're seeing, uh, when they began, what DRGs are being looked at, what carriers are being involved, and we'll continue to report on these right here on Monitor Monday. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck.
1: Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jay Paul. Spencer Paul is a senior healthcare consultant and doctor's manager and by the way as paul said if you have a problem send me an email buck at medlearnmedia.com thanks again now it's time for the results of our monitor money listener survey once again here's nancy
3: chuck it'll be interesting to see what our listeners think is risky over the horizon and based on our audience this morning, it would appear that all of the above is the answer of the day, followed by MAC targeted probe and educate in all likelihood because that is a new topic, and then followed equally by rack audits and Medicaid rack and Medicaid audits. So all of the above is risky over the next horizon with a focus on targeted probe and educate.
1: David, a couple of very interesting questions came in, I think, as a result of your segment. We've got a bunch here, Chuck. So
4: Arlene said, hey, uh, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield has a policy on this, and I'm going to ask Arlene to shoot me a copy of that, and then we'll perhaps talk about this next week, because if, if they do, I don't think they have the authority to do so. And then we got a bunch of questions for you, Nancy. So first off, does the 2018 therapy cap apply to outpatient hospital settings? Tanya wants to know.
3: The therapy cap does not apply to regular hospital, it does apply to critical access hospitals.
4: Nancy, then I think you have some observations about how my comments about clinical decision making don't necessarily work as well in the therapy coding context.
3: No, and I think it's really important to note because it's the number one question that I get from coders that are trying to apply the six new PT and OT therapy evaluation codes. First of all, um, I'm going to just put physical therapy as a reference. Uh, therapists are required to document their history with personal factors and comorbidities, an examination of body systems, including body structures and functions, activity limitation and participation restrictions, clinical presentation, and clinical decision-making. In order to score at either the low, moderate, or high complexity level, all four must be to the level that you comport with. So for therapy, clinical decision-making cannot, must be consistent with the other three levels in order to code it at that level.
4: Thanks, Nancy. And last question from Ron. So, hey, it's only January 22nd. Is it possible for a patient to have already hit the therapy cap for 2018 where you'd need to apply the KX modifier?
3: Yeah, as a matter of fact, during my um, seminar this weekend in Mississippi, we heard from many in the skilled nursing where residents that are getting therapy under Part B, residents in a skilled nursing facility under consolidated billing uh, that are receiving physical therapy and speech-language pathology reached their cap last week.
1: Thank you so much, Nancy. So, Chuck, I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks, David, very much. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Ed Roach, J. Paul Spencer, and Andrew Walkler. We thank you very much for being with us this morning. We look forward to your returning next Monday when Greg Ford joins the broadcast to report on HEDIS reviews, now underway by health plans and government payers. Also on the broadcast will be Michael Callahan. Michael will be reporting on the problems of implantable medical device credit reporting requirements. Big problem. Plus, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, and Jay Paul Spencer, all bringing you the latest regulatory and audit news. All is coming up next Monday when Monitor Monday returns. Till then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Take care, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.